Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And today we are joined by Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician who also served in the Obama White House. She's going to help us understand the latest in the fight against COVID as vaccines are rolling out widely across the country. I know we all have a lot of questions for her, so let's get right to it. We are so excited to have you join. Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician in Washington, D.C., is an MSNBC columnist and an NBC News MSNBC contributor. She served in the Obama administration as director of policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement in the White House. It is so fun to have a reunion with you, Kavita. (laughs) Yes, it's great to be here. You know, when I think back at Now it's been a year since we've been in this. I remember those early 2020 moments where we got an inkling of our future, and it felt like no one was taking COVID seriously. When COVID first came on the scene, you were out there trying to raise the alarm. Why was it so difficult to raise the alarm on COVID-19? Yeah. So first of all, I can't think of a more fun group of people to talk about what probably will be in my lifetime, one of the hardest topics on reflection. So thank you for having this forum. I think it's so incredibly important. Uh, my daughter listens and she's four. Oh. So we start them, we start them young in, in this household. But I, the reason I think people didn't want to listen is because it's so hard to imagine the unimaginable. It's so hard. I didn't think that the, you know, country would come to it, the globe would come to the standstill it did. I'll be honest, I didn't think that the death rates, a third of people in nursing homes who had COVID died. I didn't think that it would be possible in my lifetime to see this, even though I knew there was a potential for it. And then I do think that to be candid, we suffered a little bit of American exceptionalism. We like to think that we're just so different from every other country. So this was China, right? And this was um, other countries, but it doesn't happen here. And then I wouldn't be kind of, you know, responsible if I didn't say that we had an administration that undermined at every point, whether it was science and data, messaging and transparency, or just talking very clearly with consistency, we had an administration that undermined that. So everything became political and nothing became, you know, nothing became what what the science and data was what were telling us. So let's talk about vaccines, because where we're at, luckily now, after, you know, thank you for reminding us of where we started and how unbelievable this felt. And now, I mean, it feels really unbelievable that we're all now receiving vaccines a year later. Mm -hmm. It could have been years from what we heard at that time. So we have a lot of questions about what we can expect, and we'd love to hear from you. What are you hearing about how long we are protected after receiving a vaccine? Yeah, great question, Alejandra. Let's let's start with what we know. So I'll always start with the data and then let's start with what we think might happen. So we know from data from Pfizer, which was the earliest with its phase three trials, that they have immunity six months after their second dose, which is as late out as we're following them today. I bet six months from now, they'll tell us we had 12 months of immunity. So we're capturing the data in real time and reporting it out. So we know this immunity lasts at least six months. I was vaccinated since I'm seeing COVID patients in December. That's good news since we have a lot of people who were vaccinated early and 
six months continuing on will be helpful. We do have though, from other vaccines, this is the first ever kind of technology for Pfizer and, and uh, Moderna. This technology for vaccines has never been used before. And I'll make the analogy. It's like, an, it's like my iPhone iOS software. We're in the kind of Apple 1.0 version of our iOS, but they're tweaking it and making it better and already working on boosters and other versions. So even if this immunity kind of decreases and we learn that over time, we have the ability to just like my iPhone update in a matter of weeks, tweak and have a new vaccine ready. So this to me is incredible. It's why I think at the end of the day, science won. Science won because it it will help us get some comp, you know, kind of return to normalcy. But the vaccines, all three of them that are authorized in the United States will likely have long immunity in a matter of months, if not years, unless the variants throw a kink into it with which we will be able to adapt quickly. That much we know. That's wonderful to hear. And especially the potential creep back to a return to normalcy. And so to follow up, what do you think are now reasonable adjustments that we could make after we're vaccinated? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, look, the first thing I did is I uh, made kind of arrangements to see my family. I had been apart from them. My parents who are elderly, like many people's kind of parents and family members might be are high risk. And I, I am not getting on the plane myself just yet. I've got little children, but I'm going to arrange in, in a month to have my parents come here and see me. And I do think that the data on vaccination and ability to travel safely is something that we should be very comfortable with. But I would say that small gatherings, having a household that's vaccinated over to yours for dinner without masks is possible. Having small gatherings, people are planning weddings because they couldn't have them. Having small gatherings outdoors, even if it's a mixed vaccine status, is safer than not meeting outdoors with nobody vaccinated. So we are seeing incredible opportunities for some normalcy. If you have children, you know, we can't vaccinate children yet, but the transmission is so low that I would even have children comfortably talking about not just being in school. And I'll, I'll say something because I know that there's cases of children getting COVID, so we shouldn't, we should not diminish that, but children can actually have play dates or be on a playground, especially as we see vaccination rates go up. I would say to anybody listening, if we had this conversation in four more weeks, it would be very different because hopefully a majority of the country will be vaccinated by then. Wow, that's something to really look forward to. I got my second dose three weeks ago. Woohoo! I know. <laughs> so exciting and was able to take my little girls home to see my mom for the first time in exactly. over a year. And I am hearing, though, as especially as we're looking at spring break, that mm -hmm. there are spikes in cases even amidst vaccination. So what precautions should be taking place right now? Yeah. So anybody, including myself, I practice what I preach. You keep masks on if you're in a public space or in a space where you're not in your own household and you don't know everybody. Basically, if you're in an area where you don't know the people, their vaccine status, their risk factors, act like they have COVID because it'll just help you kind of keep yourself safe and keep them safe. And that will likely change once we see right now, one in five Americans are fully vaccinated. One in three have had a first dose. 
as those numbers change to two and three, four and five, we will be able to potentially, I think we'll have masks on for a little while because I think there's also a psychology of just coming back into society that if you just said, hey, you don't need your mask, you don't need to do anything. I think it would be a really jarring experience, but I think we'll be able to then gather. But today, masks matter. This is an airborne virus. We do not need to wipe down with Clorox wipes as that surfaces are not how we're getting it. Um, we don't have to wipe down our groceries and our fruit. That's not how we're getting it. It's airborne. So masks matter. Distance if you're indoors with strangers. And then just being, cog you know, just being aware of if you're symptomatic. I, I've had patients that have had the vaccine and still got it. You can get COVID even if you're fully vaccinated. You just won't die from it or hopefully be hospitalized from it. So that's something to keep aware of as most Americans are not vaccinated yet, but in, again, in a matter of weeks will be. So we've seen the CDC guidance about how now, like you mentioned, we can start traveling if mm -hmm. we're vaccinated. What about vaccine passports? Because yeah. we've been hearing people talk about that. Is that going to become real and standardized? So passports have also somehow become very political with you know statewide bans. I worry a couple of things, not because they're being made political, which I don't understand, but number one, these are still emergency authorized products. These are not fully approved products by the FDA. What's the difference? The difference is that we know that the benefits outweigh the risks, but that we recognize there might be some risks. When a product is fully approved, we've had overwhelming data that they're incredibly safe and effective where it outweighs hardly any risks. So it's hard to force people to do anything that might have risks and especially have a passport. Second is equity. My patient is mostly Latinx. They can barely have like a, the ability to navigate these insane portals. If we start to put passport requirements, it brings up a lot of issues that frankly, I get concerned about with big government tracking people. And we have very valid reasons to not trust the government. I don't care who's the president. So I think there's a problem. And what we'll see is that vaccine passports will become probably a product of the upwardly mobile and rich, or I'm in that, you know, I, I'm in that like top five, 10% of earners. And it's something that we'll have a luxury to do, but we won't have necessarily the equity, which is why I think you're seeing even the president, President Biden, not trying to push this as a federal mandate. But my little like advice, take that card, take a picture, make copies, because it's very possible that your ability to visit someone in the hospital, your ability to have your kids go to school will require you to show proof of vaccination. So take a picture, make copies, put it somewhere safe. It will be important to have that evidence. Well, it's it's so interesting because I did um, I was finally eligible and you go and you're so excited and you get a physical like a, a paper printed card, card a only, paper card only with in the United States. You're like, this is it. Really? This is with it. Like, with this is all it. the technology in the world. Like, and I guess, really? you know, maybe you hit on it on a little bit of the like big government data. But why are we why is the CDC right. still relying on cards? Yeah for yeah. public health information. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the policy answer. The policy answer is that the CDC was never set up as an agency to, we have never really equipped the CDC to handle a pandemic like this ever. And, and we have 
consistently underfunded, undermined, underinvested in technology. It's the same reason that if you walk into a hospital today, if you walk into the Mayo Clinic today, the ID number you get there does not match the ID number you get if you walk into George Washington University Hospital. And so they don't know that you're the same person. We don't have unique identifiers. And I do think that that's a reflection of a big government, small government sentiments about the types of government and attitudes people have. But I will I will say I I was a I would have been a big fan of these mandates four years ago and now I've had enough patience that um, I really do worry about someone having their names in a database because I've seen I've seen how that backfires when administrations take a different stance. So we're hearing that all these different stores are offering free lamination for your vaccination yeah. cards. Should we laminate our cards or do you anticipate we might need to update them in the future? I, no, I think that a l lamination is a good idea just because if you're tucking it in something, the paper can degrade. And I, I do think it's it's not a bad idea. I think even more important is just having that photo proof because um, I can print a photo so that they can see that I got Moderna. When you're asking about kind of follow-up, the I think it's highly likely these are not our last COVID shots. We are going to have likely some boosters in our future. People are wondering whether we're going to need something like every year, like the flu, every five years, like when you're older and shingles. It's, a, it's not clear. But I do think that we will have the need to show, I got Moderna, so do I need to have the Moderna booster or can I get whatever booster is available? So I think as long as you have a picture, it's, it's okay to laminate. And I can promise you, because I've already had patients who have lost their cards, so it's it speaks to why we're going to probably also need to have blood tests, which we do, which are different, by the way, a little point. You can walk into a pharmacy and get an antibody test that is not the same antibody test to tell you if your vaccine worked. Different antibodies. So, uh, But we are probably going to have to wrestle with having people get blood tests to show that they were immunized if they've lost their card. I've had to do that for my hepatitis vaccinations. I don't carry that around, um, but I am vaccinated and proof comes up in my blood. We will likely have that in our future as well for people who lost cards, et cetera. Wow. I hadn't even considered that would be a way of testing as to whether you yeah, got the vaccine. Yeah, which is good. So. That's the good news is that, you know, I know there's a lot of don't, don't go into crisis mode if you lose it. There's, there's ways, but it's not super easy, but you know, yeah, right. it's possible. It can it be is. done. It is possible. Well, you talked a little bit about your parents coming to visit you and in traveling, and we're seeing so many people that are traveling now, what precautions would you have them take as they are going through the process of going through the airport and getting on the airplane outside of just mask wearing? Think about where you're coming from and where you're going to. For example, if you're going into the state of Michigan right now, certain parts, Detroit, the thumb part of Michigan, we're seeing 35% positivity rates. It is a true it is wow. a true hotspot. The average age of someone being hospitalized is 40 in Detroit. The average age of a case in the Detroit area is in the teens and 20s. So I would think carefully about where you're coming from and where you're going to. The second thing I would do to keep yourself safe, you can keep yourself safe on a flight. You can do it with a mask. People are not taking them off and eating. You can do those types of things to keep yourself safe. I just told you how you don't need to wipe things down, but I think psychologically people are still doing it. That's fine, but it's reassuring. The mask and probably not taking it off and moving it around matters the most. 
it's the traveling to and from the airport and what you're doing when you land that I, I worry about. And you just need to make sure that if you're around people who are mostly vaccinated, that's great. You can take off your masks. If people are not vaccinated like kids, just make sure that you're not worried about those children getting sick if they have high risk conditions or just in general, you know, you're trying to keep it safe. You can put a mask on them or you can stay masked. And then other safety tips while traveling, do anything possible to kind of avoid multiple kind of contact points with strangers. So I know some people have to make stops. If you're elderly, ask for, you know, potentially an escort so that you don't have to deal with going through a lot of like hallway traffic inside the airport. And then if you are worried at all, there are tests. There are now a plethora of tests that you can get. Some of them are cheaper than others. Remember that you can get a test based at a clinic or doctor's office. It's paid for, it's free. Counties and cities are also offering free testing. If you're really trying to be extra, extra, extra safe, you can test before you leave. It just gives you one snapshot. And then you can wait for about three to five days after you kind of land and interact with your family and test. And that's also helpful and reassuring, but I would say at a minimum masks and just being cautious about kind of, you know, having anybody interact with you, especially if they're not wearing a mask properly. Yes. Yes. The mask, the mask that like goes on your chin doesn't really do anything. Uh, so that's, those are, those are kind of the pieces of advice, but where you're coming from and where you're going to matter. If you're going from or into a hot spot, it might be worth just waiting for three to four weeks because I think we'll get through this, but it, it takes probably three to four week cycles to get through these surges and hotspots. And so you talked a little bit about testing after you land right. or before you go. How have tests evolved since Yeah, tests are, we still have a crisis, I think, where tests are just not as accessible. Um, there are people, yeah. Dr. Michael Mina at Harvard, there are others who have been advocating for something as easy as a pregnancy test and as cheap as a pregnancy test. Tests right now, though, you can get now direct-to-home tests that are available and for for pod listeners, I'll make sure we have a list of the safely kind of approved, no marketing, but just how you can find whether something is safe and approved and ready for you to take it home. You can get them as low as 20 to $30. So they're not foolproof. They're rapid tests that are meant to just tell you kind of if you're positive, are you, you know, that's helpful. If it's negative, it is not a kind of a passport in and of itself. But I know that especially since we've all been avoiding contact for a year and a half, that that can be helpful just to give people a little mental reassurance that we're not exposing anybody to any harm. Yeah, I, I was actually listening to a panel of experts um, that had some testing experts and um, Peter Piot, who had yeah. tracked Ebola mm -hmm. and, um, and AIDS. And he was talking about how COVID is already morphing in developing countries in animals and um, and it was kind of a bleak picture it's, of the yeah. world and we're not vaccinating <laughs> the world yet although thankfully President Biden has prioritized getting back into vaccinating the world so right. how mm -hmm. how fearful should we be of you know that global um, aspect and uh, their thought was testing has to remain with us for a long yeah. time. Is that yeah. where you would say? I Absolutely. Peter is, I can't find a more respected figure than him. 
but someone who will scare the bejesus out of you if you listen <laughs> to him because yeah. you're like, oh my God, like I'm never leaving my house and I'm always wearing a bubble. So a couple of things. I think science, I just told you how science saved us. Science is like the answer here. Science is also going to be kind of what kind of saves us and prevents us in the future. We did not have, so less than 0.1% of our coronavirus samples from our noses and our mouths were being genetically analyzed uh, six months ago. We're now analyzing, and that is the UK by comparison was analyzing four to 5% of their samples. So we are now taking a turn where we did not prioritize surveillance. We did not prioritize testing to, to your point, to Peter's point. We did not prioritize tracing. We never have, we just have not gotten on top of it. I think that I am very worried, but I am hoping that we have learned these lessons so that genetic surveillance, so that we're not just getting kind of passive like reports from the World Health Organization, but we've got our own monitoring system, testing like the kind that's available if you want it yourself and you can buy it in the grocery store aisle or that you can get through safely in a doctor's office covered by insurance, thank you to the Affordable Care Act. And then number three, tracing. South Korea, people talk about countries that did this well. South Korea was incredibly on top of it. Why? Not because they're just that much better, they lost up to 20% of their country to MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. So they had an incredibly difficult experience and learned. I'm hoping we learn, and that's why I am not as bleak about our outlook, but you bet we're going to have, um, that's why I think that as normal as I want 2021 to be, there's gonna be this hesitancy, right? We're, we're gonna need, a lot more conviction to feel normal for a while. And I think, you know, people have popularized, it's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to not be okay. You know, I think we just have to, like, we have to accept that people might not ask for help. We're gonna have to just go in and realize our kids are suffering. We as women who are working are suffering. You know, our parents who haven't seen us and some of whom have died or, or any loved one who might've died, we're suffering and so, that bleak outlook can be buoyed by science and optimism, but there is some part of this that's going to always be with us. Yeah. And, you know, people are looking for pieces of optimism and the vaccine is that yeah. piece. But we're also in a country where because of some of this American exceptionalism, people don't feel like they need to be vaccinated. Yeah. So how do you vaccinate a country that doesn't believe that there's a pandemic? Yeah, in I, it's a great look. It's one of the reasons it's one of my cynical reasons for wanting some sort of mandate around vaccines or some sort of kind of function passports, whatever, for common spaces. I don't want to go to a movie theater if I know that there are people who have said, I don't believe in this, this is not real, but how am I gonna know that unless the movie theater enforces it? So I, a couple of, vaccine hesitancy gets a lot of airtime. Um, I've found that it's way more complicated and there are a majority of people, when you talk to them about why they might not want it, you kind of debunk a bunch of myths. In the Latinx communities for females, a lot of it is around some WhatsApp and Facebook groups that have propagated this myth of infertility or kind of messing with your DNA. In black communities, it's had to do a lot, much, much around kind of the systemic racism built into clinical trials and government. But then a lot of frank, if they're black people and brown people have been dying at higher rates. So there's actually valid data today that they're being treated differently. So when you get deeper into it, you start to find that more people want it than don't want it. And I would just say that for me, 
I, I'm hoping that we can get to a 60, 70% threshold of the country getting it and that that's good enough. And I think we'll be able to get there. And then for the people who don't want it, I want to make sure that it's incredibly clear that they are the ones that are putting us at risk, even if they don't believe it. And I want to also make sure that society, you can't really round them up and put them in one place, but we are going to have to have people being comfortable about asking about vaccine status, leading back to our passport question, but schools asking, hospitals asking for their workers, um, common spaces where you don't have the choice. We wouldn't hesitate right now. If we had a measles outbreak in one of our children's schools, we wouldn't hesitate to kind of think through how do we get you know children vaccinated? We're gonna have to do things like that going forward. Well, to your point about vaccine hesitancy, can we still reach herd immunity? Yeah, herd, herd, so you know, you heard probably Dr. Fauci and other very well-respected infectious disease doctors talking about like an 80, 85% target. And that has to do with how infectious a virus is. The more infectious a virus, kind of the higher you need to to kind of roll up and ratchet up the percentage of people that are vaccinated. With measles being a really good example, if someone in a room really, really big from here has measles, I could get it. So that is a really infectious disease. And we need to have basically almost 100% of people vaccinated. We know that these vaccines we're getting are so effective that it's, it's not clear if we need to have 80 to 90%, because just to be blunt, a lot of Americans have already had it and they also have natural immunity. So the natural immunity combined with the vaccine immunity with some overlap will probably get us to like two thirds of people immunized. And that should be enough based on data from other countries like Israel, where they already are doing that level to see dramatic declines. We started seeing declines in Israel after 30% of its population was vaccinated. We are at that now and hopefully starting to see the benefits of that over the next several weeks. But keeping in mind, that in like a suburb of Detroit, um, only 11% of people are vaccinated. So it'll be local. So I do think that we're going to have pockets where whether it's hesitancy or disparities in healthcare access or all the above, we don't have those levels. And that's why we need to have the trade. Gets back to the testing tracing issue and why 2021 will be a mixed picture in terms of normalcy. Well, you're you're giving oh. us a lot to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, you know, it's interesting, though, after we get at some point already, people start kind of doing the blame game. And, you know, there was the big WHO report that came out on the origins of COVID-19. Right. And I've heard some smart people asking the question, is there any chance this was an accidental lab leak? And if so, right. what would the U.S. do? How would you respond? Yeah, I. so this is where I think this is exactly why we needed to have kind of a surveillance system set up for national security issues. I don't have to talk to the three of you. We have national security experts here. I think this is exactly the kind of blindsiding that we cannot allow our country to get into. And we, whether or if this were actually lab manufactured and we do have even inklings of proof of that, that is going to need kind of a global response. And I'll be honest, I mean, it is crimes against humanity that have then been committed and people need to be held accountable. Getting to what I know better, which is kind of public health and what we have seen from the reports, not about lab-based sources, but about animal vectors, 
that makes a lot more sense. What we see generally with viruses are these kind of what we call animal reservoirs and animals will give it to each other, different species even, animals will give it to each other. It's that jump from animal, from uh, one species to you know mammals into humans that is that kind of magic leap again, which if we had had better surveillance, we might've gotten better kind of awareness of, I would argue China, you know, for what response we have publicly seen and what they've told us, they did respond appropriately with the lockdowns and kind of securing Wuhan and other places. And it really was kind of on the rest of the globe. And I'll be honest, the CDC made a huge misstep in not going along with the World Health Organization testing lab in the beginning, using and relying kind of an outdated lab mechanism and that set us behind. So if this really was lab manufactured, people need to be held accountable. Would the outcome have changed? Probably not, sadly, just given all the kind of stumbles I told you. Well, and a quick follow-up. Early in the pandemic, I remember there were doctors in China who were trying to warn the world yeah. of right. this who who died. Yeah. Do, do we think, while China locked down, are they telling the truth? Yeah. No, that's, I think, I think it's a, it's a great, this is, so I actually kind of corresponded with a family member of one of those doctors early on, because I was trying to understand what happened. Was it that they were, and my impression from a family member who I think could obviously be in incredible trouble in China, if it came to be, uh, if their identity was public, their impression was that those doctors and those healthcare professionals were left to die and that there was no, that there was no um, abdication, no, no acknowledgement of kind of the role and the doctors themselves and the staff were trying to, they knew they would die and that they were trying to get the message out that this is serious. They were trying to get the message out, this is airborne. And whether that information has been suppressed by not just China, I'll be honest, we still don't have like direct acknowledgement of the airborne status from multiple health agencies, including our own, the CDC. So we're all kind of pausing and wondering, like, was it a conspiracy and they just didn't want to do this and they knew? Um, or is there really something that we don't understand from the science? The science is incredibly compelling. This is an airborne disease or an airborne virus. Well, part of moving forward is looking back like this, right. but if we're, yeah. we're now looking to the future, as I know we're getting close to end of this conversation, which has been so helpful, how low do infection rates really have to go down in order for us to yeah. get back to a maskless society? Yeah, great question. So we like to see, we liked, there have been multiple metrics. I'll keep it simple because it's how my brain operates. We want to see kind of the infectivity rate be less than one, meaning if I get infected, I will not infect another person. And, and we can measure all that. So infectivity rate of less than one, that is very possible, by the way, very soon. And in some parts of the country is happening. The infectivity rate is lower than one in some parts of the country, the mid-Atlantic, South Calif Southern California, um, parts of the Mideast. So one infectivity rate less than one. I'd love to see a vaccination rate above 60 to 70% because we know that immunity is also being kind of herd immunity. When you have that many people immunized, it benefits even the unimmunized people. So that's what the herd concept is. Um, and then the third would be test positivity rates. We still have kind of a mixed picture of, like I said, parts of the country, 30% positivity rates. I would love to see that under 5%. And I do think we can get there. And I do predict in the fall, I think workplaces and common spaces that 
will have, we will be able to lift masks and we will accept, I'm going to say this and it's going to probably generate controversy. We will accept that a certain amount of death and illness is okay. And what is that number of death and illness that's okay? Honestly, in a, when I was practicing in a bad year with the flu several years ago, we had 60,000 deaths in one year from the flu, babies and old people. You don't hear a lot about it, but that's a, that's a bad year, but you know, not crazy. It wasn't front page news on MSNBC every single second. So we will get to a point where it is that it's okay. And, and then it'll be okay. And, and I think we'll be on edge for 2021 to see what winter looks like because winter will bring hope. You know, we follow the EU by three to four weeks in general. We're not following them now because of our high vaccination rates compared to those countries. We'll be looking at other countries, including our own, hopefully for patterns that mimic the past, but could predict the future as well. My goodness. Well, that is a little no. <laughs> It's The good news, here's the great, the great news is that the normalcy will be, kids will be in school. The four of us would be able to hug. I mean, there's, there's <laughs> going to be those like, that would those, be so nice. there's going to be like signs of normal that are just human. Right. And I think physical touch, right. I think that is going to come back and that's going to feel great. You know, like I, like, you know, yeah. there, I do vaccine clinics every Saturday. I always have people crying. I start crying and it's because it is that return. That is the first step to getting back to normal, the first. And and it'll it's here though. I, you know, I can't say enough of how incredible this moment in history is. Hopefully one we never forget because we did kind of achieve our way out of this by science. It's amazing. And is that what we have to look forward to? Is that the piece of hope that Yeah, Americans I think have? the hope is really the resilience. You know, even with such a terrible year and a half that has not ended necessarily, I've seen, um, I feel like the four of us can agree from all our corners in life. We've seen so much kindness. We've seen, I mean, even people like, I feel honored to have the three of you like reaching out to me. We're seeing connections that would not be made and I hope that that some of that comes back. And, and at the same time, we're seeing incredible grief and incredible loss. And, and I, want, I want there to be more acknowledgement of that. And if anything, I'm hoping that especially for so many women I know who have been taken out of the workforce, kind of forced to compromise everything in their being and identity just to keep their families together, this is only going to hopefully be a more positive like end to this. And, and this can be a way forward. And I'm hoping I, I see an America where we're going to lift each other up. I'm Asian violence, Black Lives Matter, the Derek Chauvin trial going on right now. We have to come out of it better and and call it for what it is. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I can be a small part of that. But I hope the three of you can carry that forward for anybody who's listening. And I have confidence if you didn't have this pandemic, you might not be able to as easily. Right. So yes, I am optimistic and happy that I've got kids that I can show this to. So yes. <laughs> so true. Well, Dr. Kavita Patel, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to having Thank you back you. on. Yes. hearing from Kavita. It was just like the honest assessment of someone who has been there and seen it all from day one. I loved it. The empathy and compassion she showed when she talked about, you know, tearing up when she's getting the vaccine and also what the impact on 
of the pandemic has been on mothers and just the realness that comes from it. It was very much like sitting with a friend and talking about it, but also having it come from someone who is a subject matter expert in that field. A brilliant friend who says it like it is, because I feel like we hear so much information and it's in a lot of kind of talking points. And she just spoke so frankly and got to the point. And I feel like I learned so much. As did I. And as we talk about another friend of our podcast, our POTUS of the Week goes to Civic Nation board chair, Valerie Jarrett, who was also a previous guest on our podcast. Today, Civic Nation launched Made to Save. It's a national public education and grassroots organizing effort to make access to COVID-19 vaccines more equitable for communities of color and build the trust in the vaccine among communities that have been hit the hardest. We know how important this is. It's being launched alongside an array of corporate and non profit labor and healthcare policy partners. So I hope that everyone is checking forward and making sure that when they are eligible for the vaccine that they go and get it. And our shout out this week goes to Jenna Scurry. She is the 911 dispatcher who watched George Floyd's arrest on surveillance video and said that the restraint lasted so long that she called a police sergeant because she feared something was quote going wrong. So she essentially called the police on the police. We salute Jenna for her bravery and her integrity. We're going to keep this streak of incredible interviews going next week with Dr. Edith Egger, who is joining us. She is a Holocaust survivor, a specialist in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, and has written several books. Oprah Winfrey said, I will be forever changed by Dr. Edith Egger's story. We can't wait to hear it and share it with all of you. As always, Pod is a Woman is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.